Good afternoon. There's no commercial support for today's activity. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. If you have any questions, please enter in the Q&A and we'll ask those at the end of this presentation. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Shay Abadoye. Uh, Shay is from Nigeria and received his medical diploma at the University of Lagos. He has a master's degree in public health from University of Texas Health Center in Santonio. He's currently a PGY3 IM resident. He's interested in hematology and oncology and heading to Arizona in July for his hematology and oncology fellowship. Join me in welcoming Dr. Abadoi. Thank you, Susan. Uh -huh. um, good morning, everyone, or should I say good afternoon? Um, the title of my presentation is Trauma Prophylaxis After Extremity Fracture, a Time for Aspirin. And uh, my mentor for um, this presentation is Dr. Johnson. Um, I believe this presentation is a very important one. Um, the reason why is because of our experience in the hospital. Um, a lot of us have come across patients who were admitted either because they had a traumatic injury, and sometimes we have that decision as to decide what anticoagulation we start them on. So this presentation is going to shed more light um, the role of aspirin as a single agent. Um, first of all, I do not have any um, financial interests or arrangements in regards to this presentation. Um, in terms of the objectives of the presentation is to understand the pathophysiology of uh, phenothromboembolism, which is VTE, um, review current guidelines for VTE prevention in patients with fractures, and also identify recommendations for specific populations that might benefit from the use of this medication along with the current guidelines. And finally, we're gonna appraise the role of aspirin as a single agent for venotromboprophylaxis in patients with extremity fracture. Now, this is the outline of my presentation. Um, like I said earlier, we talk about the pathophysiology, the significance, the role of antithrombotic agents, and we'll talk about three, two important trials, the ADAPT and CLOT trial. First of all, we're all familiar with venotromboembolism. Um, it's a condition that we have come across in our practice, which is basically a condition that results when um, you have an occlusion of a blood vessel. It could be either in the arteries, in that case, we term it as pulmonary embolism, or it could be in the veins, the deep veins, either the arms and legs, and that's when we call it deep vein thrombosis. We also have hospital-acquired um, VTEs, and basically that just means um, for patients who develop VTEs while they're in the hospital, either because they were exposed to um, any surgical intervention or either because they were admitted for um, their traumatic injuries. Now, the typical pre, um, clinical findings that you find for VTEs, depending on the location, um, could be if it's uh, the deep veins or it's a DVT, patients will present with pain, swelling in the lower extremities. Um, if it's pulmonary embolism, most times patients will present with either shortness of breath, chest pain, and sometimes patients might have syncopial episodes. Now, why is VTE significant? VTE is significant for several reasons. One, it's the most common and preventable cause of um, 
hospital deaths in the hospital. And studies have shown that VT prolongs hospitalization by additional four to seven days. That tells you how significant it is because that extends the stay for patients in the hospital, prolonging their treatment, prolonging their exposure to infections. Um, the other thing that was also significant about VTEs is the cost incurred in treating patients with this. Um, the healthcare system, um, from what I understand from the study that I, I looked up, showed that about it cost the healthcare system about $500 billion, uh, sorry, $5 billion a year um, just to treat patients with blood clots. So that's a significant amount. And that's why um, VT is very, very significant. And that's the reason why I decided to talk about this presentation. Now, in terms of the pathophysiology, we're all aware of the Vetrov's um, triad, uh, which highlights three significant factors that increases the risk for patients developing VTEs. Um, the first is the hypercoagulability for patients. Secondly is vascular damage. And the third is um, blood stasis or circulatory stasis. Now our focus here in this presentation is traumatic patients. And for traumatic patients, they have a higher risk. Why? One, because of the injuries that they encounter. Two, because of the surgeries that they go to and go through to treat their traumatic, uh, traumatic injuries, and lastly, because of the relative immobility that they experience while they recover from um, the um, surgery or from their um, traumatic injuries. So in that case, they, they have a higher risk compared to other patients. And I actually highlighted this as well, just to give us a sense of the patients who are higher risk. You can see that surgical patients are higher risk compared to the other pop patient population. Um, the next slide um, highlights um, patients, and this slide was, or table was um, gotten from the Vanderbilt University. And basically it classifies patients according to the risk factors, um, depending on their age and depending on the scoring system. So the ISS is a measure, a standardized measure, which stands for uh, injury severity scale. And basically what it looks at, it compares, it analyzes the amount of uh, injuries that patients sustain over a period of time and looking at three um, areas in the body and they come up with a scoring system. The highest scoring system you can ever get in patients is around 75. Now patients who are higher risk are patients who in most cases have had um, a scale higher than 15 or have had multiple injuries or fractures involving either the pelvic or other parts of the body like the lung bones as well. Now, the um, Western Trauma Association is uh, a guide was, was designed to come up with a guideline that helps um, stratify patients depending on their risk factors and determining what anticoagulation therapy that they should receive. And this is the recent guideline from 2020. Um, so patients depending, and this is all dependent on, like I said, their risk factors and also dependent on and their kidney function, and also the kind of injuries they sustain. So most cases, patients are always started on low molecular weight heparin, and low molecular weight heparin has been shown to be the uh, preferred choice for patients who develop, or preferred choice to prevent patients from developing thromboembolic events. I also put here as well the American Society of Hematology guidelines from 2018, just to highlight you know, how patients are re-stratified according to um, their severity and the risk of developing um, thromboembolic events. And this is very important because, you know, 
in the healthcare system, um, healthcare uh, professionals or hospitals are mandated to risk stratify patients who are admitted in the hospital. And there are several ways that we can actually prevent uh, traumatic events. It could be either primary or secondary. But my main focus here is on the primary prevention. And there are um, basically two ways that we can go about that. You can either do the pharmacologic or you can do the mechanical um, route. For the mechanical route, um, patients who come in most times in the hospital, we either put them on um, sequential, compressional devices, which is also known as intermittent pneumatic compressions, or we can do the anti-embolic uh, stockings as a way of helping them prevent um, DVT from a mechanical route. But the problem with that is that these patients, because they, of the injuries they sustain, it's kind of difficult to put them on mechanical prophylaxis. So the option would be to go with the pharma pharmacologic route. Now there are two different types. You can either go to the oral route or you can go through the injectables. Now, the oral route, typical examples are um, aspirin or the direct oral anticoagulants such as Adoax. And in terms of the um, injectables, we have the low molecular weight heparin. And the decision in terms of the pharmacologic prophylaxis is more or less like a balance um, between um, the effectiveness of the agent and the side effects that patients encounter when they take the prophylactic agent. Now, the first study that, that um, compared low molecular weight um, and showed that there was some benefit for prophylaxis for patients was in 1996. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it showed that low molecular weight was the preferred choice for patients who experienced traumatic injuries. And since this study was published in 96, a lot of countries and a lot of healthcare um, systems or hospitals have um, used low molecular weight as a preferred choice um, because of the, based on this study and also because of the um, low side effects that you get from um, low molecular weight heparin. Well, the problem with this is that a lot of patients a lot of patients um, find it very difficult using low molecular weight heparin because it's painful when you're injecting it or because of bruising around the site. So because of that, there's a problem with adherence when it comes to the medication. In our current hospital system, um, you notice that a lot of patients who end up having um, a hip replacement, they end up being discharged on Lovenox um, subcutaneous daily and also on aspirin, um, you'll do Lovenox for three weeks and aspirin afterwards for another three weeks as well. I mean, it's always high dose aspirin. Now, I already mentioned about the prevention, both primary and secondary. And like I said, the problem in most patients is adherence, especially with the injectables, because of it being painful and also because of bruising around the site. So the more we screen patients for VCU prophylaxis, um, the more the need for pharmacologic prophylaxis for these patients and the increased healthcare costs for these patients. And because of that, you know, the question um, I thought to myself was that, is there a different way that we can manage these patients um, with oral medications? And that's where I came up with these two trials. Um, one was the ADAPT trial and one of the other one was the prevent Clot trial. Now the prevent the ADAPT trial was the first trial that was done that looked at aspirin and compared it with low molecular weight heparin in terms of the effectiveness to see if there was any benefit of aspirin over low molecular weight heparin as an agent for uh, patients who had traumatic injuries. 
Now the ADAPT trial is uh, an acronym that stands for a direct approach to preventing thrombosis. Um, it was the first trial that was done. It was a single center trial, meaning that it was done in only one center. It was open label, meaning that the patients or the participants and also the investigators were aware of the uh, medications that they were taking and also the groups that they were assigned to. And it was a randomized controlled trial. A total of 329 patients were included in the study and it was done over a one year period. And it was done in, a academic, in an academic center in Baltimore, Maryland. And basically the goal was to assess the effectiveness of aspirin over low molecular weight heparin as a choice for patients who had traumatic injuries. In terms of the inclusion criteria, um, patients above 18 years were assigned to the group. Patients who had pelvic fractures or had um, extremity fractures, as well as patients who had acetylabulum fractures were also included in the group as well. In terms of the exclusion criteria, patients who were excluded from the group included patients who were pregnant, uh, patients who had pre-existing coagulopathy, patients who were already on um, DVT, who, patients who were already on therapeutic or prophylactic anticoagulation before enrollment in the study, patients who had an impaired um, kidney function with a GFR less than 30. Patients who had um, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia were also included in the study, excluded from the study. Now, a total of 1,450 patients were initially screened. And eventually, after they were excluded, based on the inclusion and exclusion criteria, a total of 329 patients were enrolled. And these patients were assigned on a one-to-one -one ratio in two different groups, the aspirin group and the low molecular weight heparin group. For the aspirin group, patients were to receive 81 milligrams twice daily of aspirin. And for the low molecular weight heparin group, they were to receive 30 milligrams of or 30 milligrams twice daily. And in terms of the randomization, they used the red cap system in order to randomize patients into two different groups. And like I mentioned earlier, they were assigned patients getting 81 milligrams of aspirin twice daily and getting 30 milligrams of low molecular weight happening uh, twice daily as well. Now, the duration of trauma prophylaxis was based on the hospital guidelines. Unfortunately, they did not share that, share that information on the protocol. Um, patients who um, were able to get um, prophylactic um, treatment in terms of uh, mechanical prophylaxis were also um, provided to those patients as well. And patients were monitored over a 90-day period. Follow-up was either done by either calling them or if they had like office visits. And the adherence, I think from the study, they had a very good adherence from the study. I think it was over around 90% in total. In terms of the statistical analysis, um, the investigators um, came up with the conclusion that for them to have a significant power for the study, they needed about a minimum of 160 patients in each of the group. And the goal was to detect 60% uh, treatment superiority um, compared to low molecular weight and aspirin. And the, they used the intention to treat analysis as a way of assessing um, those patients. Now, there were two different techniques that they were able to assess. They looked at the global rank test and they looked at the weight, weighted time to event analysis. Now, the global rank test, basically what it does, it, it sums each of the events and it um, identifies which of those events are of highest priority. 
and the weighted time event weighs all those events over a period of time. Now, in terms of the primary outcome, um, they basically had one outcome, which was the composite outcome that composed of um, several conditions. So patients who had um, bleeding com complications is what they looked out for. They looked out for patients who had VT events. They looked for patients who had deep surgical side infections and also dead over a three month period. And the term for bleeding complications included patients who had a drop in their hemoglobin by greater than two grams um, once they were um, enrolled in the study. Any patient that um, received blood transfusion in the study, um, patients who had gastrointestinal bleeding as well, and patients who required um, surgery after they found that they had a surgical site hematoma. In terms of VT events, they classified them into pulmonary embolism, being massive, submassive, and clinically um, significant. So massive was based on, and the definition was based on the American Heart Association definition of criteria, where uh, massive is defined as any um, PE that is with hypertension and systolic blood pressure less than 90. For some, so massive was for PEs that were uh, without any hypertension and clinically significant were patients who they don't have any hypertension, but had other symptoms like chest pain or shortness of breath. They also looked at the deep surgical site infection, uh, and basically they defined that based on CDC's criteria, which was any infection that required um, surgical intervention afterwards. So in terms of the baseline demographics, um, the investigators then showed that um, the patients were both equal in both groups. Um, you can see that there was a high percentage of uh, male um, participants in the group and also white people as well. In terms of the um, injury severity score, which I highlighted, the mean score for them was around 11. So both groups were actually similar in um, from the race, gender, and in terms of the severity and fractures that they sustained. Now, in terms of adherence, um, between the both groups, it was, there wasn't any difference. Um, the aspirin group, they had about 94% adherence, and with the low molecular weight group, they had about 91%. And like I had mentioned, these patients were followed up over a 90-day period. Um, we also looked at patients who were discharged from the hospital, and about 4% of pa about four patients in the aspirin arm, and 3% three patients in the low molecular arm as well, we're still on prophylaxis after or longer than 28 days. Now, the first out analysis that they looked out for was the global rank analysis. And you can see that from the table um, that there wasn't any difference between the aspirin and the low molecular weight group. Um, in the aspirin group, about 60% of patients had event-free um, over the 90-day period. And the same thing about um, 59% for the low molecular weight group. So there wasn't any um, difference between the groups in terms of events. Uh, but in terms of VTEs, you can see that aspirin had um, a higher number, about 3.1%. But in terms of death from two groups, um, the low molecular weight had more deaths compared to the aspirin group. Now, this graph just highlights um, the weight to time analysis. Um, and basically, you can see that the the graph on the, the top graph on the, on the slide shows the aspirin group and the graph below shows the low molecular weight group. And there wasn't any difference in terms of the graph between both, both groups. 
Now the weighted time to event analysis, um, this is a graph showing that as well, where you can see that the aspirin group, they had uh, a longer period, there was more graph, uh, there was more area covering the aspirin group compared to the low molecular weight, uh, low molecular weight heparin group. So because of that, we can act from what the um, investigators could conclude from the study was that even though um, from the um, global rank um, analysis, there wasn't any difference between the two groups, but in terms of the time to event analysis, it looked that it looked like low molecular weight heparin was um, um, a better choice in terms of superiority compared to the aspirin group. But one thing that I noticed was it wasn't significant, I think because they had some issues with the point estimate for the patients that they were looking out for. Now, in terms of the limitations from the study, um, I think one of the first things that I noticed was that there was a significant difference in the duration of prophylaxis compared to the two groups. Um, in some cases, um, because the protocol was designed based on the hospital's protocol, so some patients had aspirin for a longer period, some patients had low molecular weight heparin for a longer period as well. Now, there was a lack of blinding and allocation concealment. Why? Because patients and the um, investigators were aware of which group they belong to, and that in itself would have um, created some form of bias as well. Um, the study was also a single center study. Um, it didn't involve multiple centers, and they did not account other bleeding complications as well. Um, in such cases, they did not um, account for pineal nerve injuries um, as part of the severity uh, for bleeding events. And I had mentioned earlier as well that they had a problem with the point estimate in terms of time to event analysis. Now, the conclusion from the study showed that, you know, patients preferred the oral route, which is the aspirin, um, based on the global rank analysis. But in terms of um, which agent was better, it showed that low molecular weight heparin or low molecular weight, um, low molecular weight was a preferred choice um, compared to aspirin. And the ADAPT trial paved the way for the next trial, which was the prevent clot trial, which was the, I would say the largest trial that has been done to date that looked at aspirin and low molecular weight. And it was published in the New England Journal in uh, 2023, New England Journal of Medicine in 2023. Uh, it is a multi-center study, meaning that it involved multiple centers in the United States and also in Canada. I believe about 21 centers were involved and the total amount of patients included in the study were 12,000 patients. Now, it was a parallel study. And the reason why I wanna emphasize is that the parallel study, meaning that patients were only assigned to the groups that they were going to receive the treatment. So there wasn't any crossover. And because of that, there wasn't any opportunity for any bias or any changes in the outcome of the, of the outcomes they were looking for. And their focus was to see if aspirin was non-inferior to low molecular weight. Now, like I mentioned, there were 21 centers involved. It was done over a three, over a four-year period, and about 12,000 patients were enrolled in the study. In terms of the inclusion criteria, it was almost similar with the ADAPT trial. Patients who are above 18, um, patients who had extremity fractures, who had a pelvic fracture, were also included as well. Um, in terms of the exclusion criteria, um, the only difference between the two was that patients who were in the hospital more than 48 hours were excluded from the study. Patients who received two doses of low molecular weight or aspirin were also excluded from the study as well. 
Now, the total amount of patients that were first screened were about um, 57,000. And based on the exclusion and exclusion criteria, they came up with a total of 12,000 in terms of eligibility. And they looked at both intention to treat and a protocol analysis to assess their outcomes. In terms of the methods, um, patients were assigned to a one-to-one -one, uh, with aspirin group and also the low molecular weight group. Uh, patients will receive 81 milligrams twice daily and the low molecular weight they were receiving 30 milligrams twice daily as well. And in terms of randomization, they used uh, a capture system to randomize and also to um, pair the group patients to two, two different groups. In terms of um, the duration of trauma prophylaxis, um, it was also dependent on the site. So each of the sites had different protocols in terms of how they, how long they were going to keep the patients on. Um, patients um, and the treating physicians were aware of the group assignments. Um, they had an adjudicated um, committee that included three surgeons that basically looked at the outcomes. And those, um, um, those members of the committee uh, were not aware of the um, groups that were receiving um, traumaprophylactic treatment. Now, out of the 21 sites, um, they had a good follow-up of 96.8%, and the adherence was around 87.4%. In regards to the statistical analysis, um, the investigators um, designed the sample size in order to um, achieve a power of about 95%. So they needed about 12,200 patients to be able to do that. And they um, used the intention to treat upward, like I had mentioned, as the primary analysis. And they also used treatment-specific Kaplan-Meier estimators um, based on the cumulative in incidence for those outcomes to assess for the primary outcomes. In terms of the primary outcome, initially, when the study was being um, designed, the primary outcome was initially deaths related to pulmonary embolism, but the um, investigators then decided to change that to a broader term and they went with all-cause mortality. And they did that over a three-month period. In terms of the secondary outcomes, they looked at the cause-specific death and that related to um, either pulmonary embolism or possibly related to pulmonary embolism. And the way they did that was that the adjudicators uh, who were the surgeons would um, look at each of those cases they look at the bio, uh, autopsy reports and see if the autopsy stated that those um, patients died from pulmonary embolism, then they will term it as um, a cause from pulmonary embolism. But if it was possibly related, they would say they would look at um, the clinical picture and also in um, diagnostic investigation or diagnostic evidence that suggested that they ended up having pulmonary embolism and that was the reason for their death. And also, they also looked at non-fatal pulmonary embolism, which included massive, so massive, and also clinically significant as well. For patients who are asymptomatic, they also looked at if they had any uh, segmental or subsegmental locations for their pulmonary embolism. Other outcomes that they looked out for was deep vein thrombosis, and they also looked at bleeding complications. In this case, they only looked at three um, parameters, which was one, bleeding um, that required reoperation, bleeding um, that caused a drop in either two grams of um, hemoglobin or bleeding that ended up making patients symptomatic or bleeding from a particular organ. Now, they also looked at the wound complications and the deep surgical side infections based on the CDC criteria. Now, in terms of the baseline uh, demographics for these patients, 
Um, the um, mean um, age was around 44. And uh, in terms of the um, male gender, they will have more patients in the male gender compared to the female gender in both groups. Um, they were more white in the groups as well. And also in terms of the um, severity index score, it was around nine. So they made sure that the both groups were similar in terms of like their race, in terms of the risk factors that they had, and then also in terms of the injuries that they sustained as well. Now, in terms of the primary outcome, like I had mentioned, they had looked at the death from any cause, the all-cause mortality. And you can see that there isn't any difference between aspirin and low molecular weight. You have about um, 47 people in the aspirin group and you have about 45 people. So they were quite similar. The same thing with um, pulmonary embolism, there wasn't any difference. Um, but you can see with the DVTs that the aspirin group, they were higher compared to uh, the low molecular weight heparin group. Now, in, and this was the same, almost similar in the intention to treat um, analysis or population that they were looking at and the protocol population that they also looked at. So there wasn't any difference between um, two groups in terms of the primary outcome, but the only difference was in terms of secondary outcome in regards to TVT. Now, the next thing they also looked at was the cumulative incidence um, using the Kaplan-Meier estimates. And you can see that looking at the graph here, there isn't any significant difference or variation between the two groups. You can see that the lines are almost closely are closely to each other. So like I said from the table earlier that there wasn't any difference. Um, the same thing with pulmonary embolism related deaths. Um, there wasn't any much difference. Um, the same thing as well with the non-fatal pulmonary embolism. You can see the graph, they're almost similar. And even though at the 90 days, they're almost similar on both ends. The same thing with the deep vein thrombosis and uh, the same thing with bleeding complications as well. And also with wound complications as well and surgical site infections. There wasn't any difference. The lines were almost similar. Now the estimated difference in debt, um, in order to show that there was a non-inferiority margin, you can see that based on the risk difference that aspirin, even though most of the points are in between the uh, aspirin and the points are in close to the zero point, it shows that there wasn't, that aspirin wasn't superior, but it didn't pass the non-inferiority margin, meaning that aspirin and it was non-inferior to low molecular weight happened. Now, the only difference, aside the DVT um, difference between the two groups was the safety and adverse outcomes. Um, in terms of bleeding complications, um, I'd mentioned that uh, in terms of DVT um, outcomes, aspirin, there were more patients in the group that ended up having DVTs compared to low molecular weight heparin. But in terms of bleeding complications, low molecular weight um, was a lot higher than the aspirin group. Now, in terms of the uh, limitations from the study, um, almost similar with the ADAPT trial, um, the duration of prophylaxis in the hospital and after discharge was, uh, wasn't specific. So it basically was all dependent on what the hospital or the system already had in place. So that could have skewed um, the results because some patients might have received anticoagulation longer than compared to other patients. Um, the other thing too was that it was an open label 
study, so it was, there was that chance for um, surveillance bias. And um, the primary outcome, like I had mentioned, initially was to look at um, deaths from pulmonary embolism, but that was changed um, after the enrollment had begun. And the other thing I also noticed too was that there wasn't um, enough diversity when they were comparing patients. There were more patients that were males and more patients that were white compared to other races. So in conclusion from that study, um, we can actually say that aspirin um, is not inferior to low molecular weight heparin. And we can actually say from the study as well that patients actually preferred taking aspirin because it's an oral medication, it's easier to administer compared to um, low molecular weight heparin. And in, in comparing those outcomes, you can also see that the all-cause mortality wasn't any different. Um, the only difference in the outcomes that they looked at was that the DVT group um, was a lot higher in the aspirin group compared to the low molecular weight group. And uh, the findings were consistent overall. In terms of my conclusion from um, this presentation, I would say that um, VT is the most common um, cause or most common unpreventable cause of hospital deaths. Um, and healthcare systems um, are mandated, you know, once patients are admitted to assess patients for the risk of developing um, VTEs. Um, the CLAW trial, like I had mentioned, the different CLAW trial was the first trial to date that has shown compelling evidence that aspirin as a single agent is um, non-inferior to low molecular weight. And the cost of aspirin is um, 81 milligrams is about a dollar. And over one month period, it spent about $60 just to get one month for 81 milligrams twice a day compared to uh, low molecular weight, which costs about $300 if you were to do that over a one month period with uh, 30 milligrams twice a day dosing. So it's a very inexpensive drug. It's easy to take. Patients actually prefer because it's not painful. It's not uncomfortable for them to administer. So my recommendation is, you know, we need to review current guidelines in regards to hospital acquired VTEs and see if we can also include aspirin as an option for patients who have traumatic injuries. Now, I also would like to say that, you know, further studies needed to be done so that we can compare um, other patients as well, non-surgical patients, and also patients who have um, cranial nerve injuries or have severe traumatic injuries so that we can see if aspirin has some benefit in patients compared to low molecular weight. I would like to thank um, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Mahmoud who helped me throughout this presentation. And uh, these are my references. Um, does anyone have any questions? Um, thank you so much. That was an excellent talk. Um, so you mentioned that the patients liked aspirin more than low molecular weight heparin. Um, was there any comment in either of the trials on, you know, the rate of compliance or how many patients dropped out um, in either group? Sure. So the, um, at that trial, I think the adherence of most patients were about 90%. Um, compared to the prevent call trial, uh, for the aspirin group, they had about 95% of patients that were compliant with the medication, even after they left the hospital. And I didn't include that there because I was going to mention that 
Um, compared to the low molecular weight, there was actually a lower amount of patients that adhered to it. I think about 88%, but they had a cutoff of 80% in terms of adherence. So they both met the adherence criteria from both groups. Perfect, thank you. Uh, excellent job, Shay. It was a very clean, uh, easy to follow and well-presented presentation. I have a couple of questions actually regarding the prevent clot trial. The uh, average age is striking to me that was mid forties. It seems a lot different than our patient population for those that come in with traumatic injuries. And then I just wanted to confirm those uh, differences in uh, bleeding where there's more bleeding with for low molecular weight heparin and there's more DVTs for aspirin. Were those statistically significant? And then my third question is what's the practice observed here because I believe it's usually Lovenox, then aspirin. And is there any data to drive that practice? Or was that kind of just developed based off these, thinking that maybe low molecular weight heparin provides more protection, so we'll give that first, then we'll give aspirin after because less risk and patient preferred. Um, so can you comment on those? Sure. Um, so the, the first question about the bleeding and the DVT in terms of the outcomes, they were all significant. Um, and I think in initially when about um, what we practice here, I'll actually go back. Um, so our current practice is for patients who have like, uh, who have a hip repair, we do um, Lovonox 70 milligrams three weeks and afterwards we do aspirin. And I think most of the surgeons actually got that from um, ASH guidelines and it's based on um, several meta-analysis and um, RCTs that actually showed that there was some benefit in patients who actually were placed on um, low molecular weight for three weeks, followed by high-dose aspirin. And I actually put it here because this is based on the ASH guidelines. But I'm hoping that, you know, with this new study that, you know, we can start leaning towards just a trial of aspirin and see if patients can actually do all with this because from that study, they didn't show that there was any any difference between outcomes between aspirin and also low molecular weight. Okay, so that's good to know that that's data-driven. Uh, how about regarding the average age of mid-40s? How, how is that even possible? <laughs> so that, that <laughs> I really don't know why, but um, it was just a, it's surprising because they had 21 centers and about 12,000 patients, but uh, I really don't know why they had a, mean age around 40, 45, but I know that that's true that most of the patients we see are like in the 60s, 50s. So I know that might be a, a reason to say that, you know, it's not really generalizable to our population, but I'll still say that the fact that they had like 12,000 patients, uh, multiple patients, there's some form of generalizability, so. Any more questions for Shay? I don't believe we had any questions online. So thank you very much for an excellent presentation.